Today's scripture reading will be from Luke 23, and today's passage is verses 39 through 43, but we'll be reading the entire passage again, starting in verse 26. So Luke 23, 26. When you get there, you can stand and join me in the reading of God's word. Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, since we are in the middle of kind of several week-long mini-series in this section of the Gospel of Luke, I'd like to take just a little bit of time uh, as we're starting out in this text to remind you of what we've kind of said in the last two weeks, uh, just so it's fresh and available for you, uh, so that at least when you come to this text, uh, you don't read it necessarily in isolation from the verses that precede and the verses which come after. Um, So this whole section uh, indeed flows into the narrative of Luke's gospel, but starts in verse 26, where you have the, the beginning of the crucifixion narrative taking place. It is when the trial has concluded, Jesus has been declared guilty, uh, by, by Pilate, and therefore the Jewish leaders are now seeking to have him crucified expediently at the hands of the Romans. And so 
that's all taking place. Jesus is being led away in verse 26. And we see that on the way, while he's being led to the cross, one of the things that takes place is people are lamenting over him and his situation, the fact that he is going to be killed. And he turns, the, uh, turns their eyes back to themselves and their own predicament. And he says, essentially, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and the coming judgment which is upon you. And again, obviously in the near context, he's speaking to Jewish people who will be in Jerusalem when God will judge the city. But uh, as, it, as it turns out, God is the kind of God who regularly is able to enact justice. And so uh, we too should, should take heed of what's going on on the cross so that when, when we look at what's happening in Jesus' crucifixion, we don't feel bad for Jesus. We reflect on that and it turns us to look at our own sin and, and think about our own sin correctly. And then last week, Tim uh, took some time to deal with Jesus' role, uh, particularly his role as the, the intercessor and the king. So as, as intercessor, Jesus is the one who pleads for people, for the Father to forgive them, even while those people are in, active, in the act of crucifying him, in the act of putting him to death. He prays and he intercedes for them, saying, uh, Father, forgive them. This is, this is Jesus' work for sinners all throughout time. And Paul will reflect on this all over the New Testament and say much to that same effect that Christ intercedes for you and I as well if we are in him so that we do not need to fear the consequences of sin, uh, which holds uh, shame often over Christians. Uh, because of Christ's intercession, we can always be coming to the Father regularly. And then also his act of uh, his identity of kingship. Here he is being crowned king, as it were, uh, because if, if the charge, the fa fabricated charge is true, um, uh, as the inscription over him says, this is the king of the Jews, there's this witness, there's this testimony that Jesus is in fact the king of the Jews. And so here, as he's being crucified, he's also being declared king in this kind of ironic twist. And as uh, history will bear itself out and we'll see in the next coming chapters, uh, Jesus actually is vindicated as the king by his resurrection. And so that brings us to the text tonight. And I just want to remind you of that theme that we've been working with as we've been going through these verses. Um, we said that Jesus is the curse-bearing prophet. That's kind of what you see a little bit last week. He's the one who bears the curse. Uh, he's the curse-bearing prophet, priest, and king who recreates our access to God. Now, you don't need to remember all that. We've said it a couple weeks. I'll say it again next week when we talk for this week, I just want you to focus on one aspect of that, which is the fact that Jesus, who he is, is able to recreate our access to God. Jesus is able to give us a reunion with the God of the universe, which before he does this was inaccessible to humanity. I think we live in a world that just kind of assumes that if there is a deity out there, that that deity is okay with us as we are. If you were to ask the average person walking uh, on the street today, uh, what, if there is a God out there, whether or not you think there's a God, if there was a God, do you think that God would be okay with you? Do you think that God would uh, receive you? Do you think that God would welcome you uh, and, and give you eternal life? And many people would say, you know, I've done some good things, some bad things, but in general, Yes, I think that if there is a God, he would look favorably upon me, you know. And, and we really live in a world that assumes that to be true. Um, 
it's, it's very rare. It's actually it's growing a little bit in our generation uh, and uh, this, this kind of sense of just inadequacy in general um, where people actually feel the weight of uh, sin, feel the shame of it. And as a result, they start feeling unworthy. Like if there was a God, the God wouldn't want anything to do with them. And uh, the response of, of many professionals in our day has been to try to convince people that actually God does look upon them with favor just as they are with no need for change or a turning from, from sin. And actually, the biblical account says something to the effect of God actually looks upon people as completely condemned and, and guilty criminals, re- rebels against God, who have the opportunity, by the grace of Jesus Christ and his work, to be reconciled with God, uh, but not so that they can go back to their sin, so that actually they can dwell with God. Now, that's the whole point of Jesus recreating our access to God. He does not recreate our access to God so that we can turn around and live our, live our lives as we please. He recreates our access to God so we can live our lives differently than we lived before we had access to God, before we dwelt with God. So just to point you to that in the text so you can see it there for yourself, uh, it's what Jesus says to that criminal on the cross as he says to him, will you remember me? And Jesus says to him, this is in verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Key word there, today you will be with me. What Jesus is saying to this criminal is that he has the pleasure and the privilege of dwelling with God, dwelling with his Lord. And so we can ask the question or we can consider, and we will for the next 30 minutes or so consider, what does that mean for the criminal as he looks to an everlasting life with his Lord. What, what does that imply in his life as he goes on from that place of death? And we should then consider it for our own lives as well. So Jesus is recreating our access to God. That's the point. Well, let me uh, show that to you in the text. Uh, verse 39 is the beginning of this uh, text that we're looking at tonight where Jesus is up on the cross. He is being crucified. And as he's being crucified with a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left, the text says this, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him or spoke out against him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now the words of this criminal, uh, we've heard several times already in the passage because you hear the Jewish religious leaders say this to Jesus, if you are the Christ, won't you do these things? Uh, We hear Herod kind of have this implication when Jesus is on trial. uh, If he is the Christ, the Messiah, won't he do these kinds of signs for Herod? And then we have the the people in the crowd who speak out against Jesus and the soldiers who say, uh, if you are the son of God, save yourself. And here the criminal joins in this chorus of those who speak out against Jesus as he's being crucified And he says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So he joins this kind of antagonistic group of people who speak against Jesus. And then you have this interesting thing happen where Jesus doesn't respond, but the other criminal, the one who's on Jesus' other side, uh, rebukes this first criminal and says to him, have you no fear of God since you are under the same sentence of judgment? Uh, do, you, do you not fear God is an interesting question, uh, particularly from uh, someone who's being crucified. As the other gospel accounts will tell us that it was really the case that there were 
criminals accusing Jesus. So the other Gospels are a little bit more generic than Luke is. And they say the criminals uh, speak out against Jesus. And what Luke tells us is one criminal speaks against Jesus and the other criminal rebukes the first criminal and then uh, speaks almost favorably of Jesus. Well, it's easy actually to harmonize those things uh, because you and I are humans. Uh, We know what it is to change our mind. And so it is likely the case that this criminal who speaks in rebuke to the first criminal is only doing so after some time. Remember, these are events that took place over the course of hours, uh, snapshotted into a couple of sentences. And so it's likely the case that the criminals both initially speak against Jesus, being criminals, being uh, on trial and now going to their death. And it is over the course of that time, over the course of this crucifixion, over the course of Jesus witnessing uh, about himself by praying for the forgiveness of those who kill him and uh, holding his tongue and all of this testimony coming together, it is likely that over the course of that time, one of the criminals changes his tune. One of the criminals begins to wrestle with the possibility that Jesus is actually the person who he said he was. And so then he comes here and he says to the first, do you not fear God? That represents probably a change of heart from this second criminal. And what it, uh, what it says to us uh, as readers of the text is that the fear of God would do something or would restrain in some way the criminal, the first criminal. Uh, when the first criminal speaks against Christ, he's representing a lack of fear of God. And the fear of the Lord, as we're told in Scripture, is the beginning of wisdom. It is the thing which is uh, a hallmark of those who are the righteous. They are the ones who fear God. And so it is fitting then to make the judgment that a criminal who speaks against the Messiah is one who epitomizes a lack of fear of God. Now, more narrowly, what this probably means is that this second criminal is commenting about the state of the first criminal after death. So uh, they're both being crucified. Their bodies and their, their destinies are sealed as it comes on this earth. Right? They are as good as dead being crucified. They're both going to be killed. But what the second criminal says in reflection uh, or in response to the first is, is likely a comment about the state of both of them after death. Now, we've already seen this in the Gospel of Luke. We've already seen this where in Luke 16, there's a rich man and Lazarus who both die. And it's at death that their statuses are changed. One of them goes to a place of comfort and one of them to a place of agony and suffering for the sin that they have committed. Here, too, you have uh, now two criminals, two men who are living their life on this earth. Their life is coming rapidly to an end. And the second criminal seems to indicate that if one were to fear God, uh, or sorry, if one were to not fear God, that it will be worse for them after death than if they were to fear God rightly. Because, uh, you know, the, the first criminal could simply say, you're dying, I'm dying, what does it matter if I fear God? But the implication is there's something after death that will take place. There's something after death which will change. And you can see that this is the thinking of that second criminal when, when he interacts with Jesus. Because he speaks to him and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he's implying this kind of hopeful expectation that there is something future after death. And that whatever that thing is, he's not really articulating it fully, that he will be included in that kingdom that he will be included within that 
uh, afterlife, if you like. And so the, the second criminal seems to think that a fear of God would lead to a different response to Jesus and therefore a kind of dwelling with him, a unity with him where Jesus will remember them in their kingdom. Now, as readers of Luke's gospel, there's a lot that's not said here that we can kind of pull from the broader sweep of the gospel. Right? Jesus has already spoken about the kingdom that he is ushering in. He said earlier that if you see me casting out demons by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom of God is coming upon you. And so Jesus has already been ushering in the kingdom through his miraculous work, through the preaching of the gospel, through the sending of the apostles into the lands to preach about this good news. And so it is likely that the, the, the kingdom of God is a, is a well-known teaching all throughout. So that when this criminal says, uh, will you, uh, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? that we as readers are supposed to kind of import kind of all of these ideas of the kingdom that have been established in Luke's gospel so far. And we've already learned a couple of things. The kingdom of God is for sinners, not for saints. This is one of the central premises of the gospel of Luke, uh, that Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. The son of man did not come to heal the righteous, or sorry, to heal those who are healthy. Those who are healthy have no need for a physician. It is those who are sick. So Jesus has a missional component to his kingdom, and those who he includes are the outcasts, the downtrodden, the blind, the poor. These are the ones who he is liberating into his kingdom. And here we meet a man who meets, well, just that description. He is being crucified, as good as dead, and a criminal, which we tend to think of these men um, because their crimes aren't listed, uh, and because of Jesus' sham trial. We tend to think of them as you know, this is just an excess of the state of Rome. They crucified everybody who was guilty. These people are likely guilty of massive crimes. Um, this, is, this is not petty theft. This is not some small offense against the government. These men are probably guilty like Barabbas was guilty. You remember Barabbas from a couple of uh, sections ago where Jesus is the one who swaps in, in place of Barabbas? Well, if Barabbas was due to be executed... Uh, and, and these men are also being executed with Jesus, it's likely that they're all being executed on similar charges or in the same kind of vein. Rebellion, treason against the state, starting of insurrections, something to that effect. They're likely uh, religious extremists being crucified by Rome. That's, that's the kind of thing that you would do to be crucified by Rome. And so here, is, here are men who have no defense. They have been caught in the act. They are guilty as guilty can be. And one of them has the rationale, the fear of God within him to say, well, I need to fear God. And here is this man who claims to actually welcome sinners into his kingdom. Oh, what, are the, what are the odds that I will be received by him in his mercy? What are the odds that I will be able to be remembered by him? And there, the words of Jesus are rather striking, that Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. And so the, then, then the point of this text is, is rather simple but the implications of it kind of go all over the place. So the point is, is pretty simple. This, this text, is a, if you like, it's a two-point sermon. Uh, there are those who are with God, and there are those who are apart from God. Okay, it's a really simple way to say it. Uh, there are those whose end and completion of their life is a hope of being with God for all eternity. And there are those who have no fear of God, 
who have no love for God, who will dwell apart from God for eternity. And this is epitomized in the two criminals. This is the epitome of Jesus' whole life in the Gospel of Luke. In, in the early chapters of Luke, one of the prophecies that's spoken over Jesus is that this child is appointed for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. He is the one who's going to split Israel and divide opinions. He's the one who's going to split the world and divide opinions. And don't you know, if you talk to people today, that Jesus is a divisive topic. He splits opinions. It is not that Jesus is welcomed with open arms by everybody. And it is not that Jesus is hated by everybody. You could go today, because it's Sunday, you could go to any number of churches in Indianapolis, in America, or in the world, and you could find a whole host of people who love to talk about Jesus and sing songs to Jesus and praise him, and they're obsessed with their king. And you could just as easily find people at that same time, on that same day, in a different location, who want nothing to do with whatever this Jewish Messiah was, if he was even real from the first century. Jesus splits opinions. That's basically exactly what the text is getting at, that Jesus has divided these two criminals. There's nothing different about them. They're committed on, they're both being crucified. They are both criminals. They're both guilty. What's different about them is one has this hopeful anticipation of dwelling with God in the future, and one does not because he has no fear of God. So a very simple uh, kind of uh, point to the text. But um, if, if you're familiar with, with uh, rifles or, or citing, citing something in, um, the text has kind of this kind of very narrow point, but the application or the implication of those points are rather profound. Just like uh, if you're citing a gun, uh, you have the, the near scope and the far scope. And if those are in line, uh, you can hit a whole number of targets far away. Uh, and if they're out of line, you'll kind of miss all over the place. Well, you'll miss consistently in, in certain directions. And so this text uh, kind of gives us those, those identifying marks, the scopes that we need to cite in our aim, those who are with God and those who are apart from God. But then there's, there's all these implications that flow from that, which allow us to actually grab some really far-reaching doctrines from Scripture and pull them into relevance to this text. Let me try to show that to you. When Jesus says to the criminal, you will be with me in paradise, uh, we should think to ourselves as readers, why is that good news? Or, or, or what is the hope in that? And there's a whole lot that we kind of assume about Scripture. If you've grown up reading Scripture, there's a whole lot you assume to be true about that phrase. But if we take it from a, let's say, a biblical theology lens, what that means is tracing the whole storyline of Scripture. Uh, what is that phrase, being with Jesus, what does that carry with it? Well, you remember our, the, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they actually did dwell with God. It's kind of the whole point of Eden, right? God creates a place where he places man, and it's this beautiful garden paradise. And what's unique about Eden, and, and there's this place outside of Eden that's not like Eden, uh, kind of chaotic, rebellious, untamed. And you have Eden, where God dwells with man. Actually, Adam and Eve can walk with God. They can walk with God in the garden. They can speak with God. They can commune and fellowship with God. This is creation as it was intended to be, being with God. It's not more than three chapters into the Bible. 
that that goes horribly wrong through the entrance of sin and therefore death into, uh, into the realm of human experience. And with death comes exile from the garden, being apart from God, where Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and the way to the garden is closed. You'll remember that God sets angels to guard the entrance of the garden so that no one can enter into it ever again. And so mankind then wanders the earth, uh, tilling the soil, working. Uh, at, at, these, at times, they have this experience of God. Uh, when God decides to come and meet with man, for instance, uh, you have, for example, Abraham that this happens to. You have Noah, who it happens to. Uh, you have the, uh, Abraham and his seed, particularly Jacob and Joseph. There's these momentary breaking ins where God uh, extends his arm to be in relation with people. But by and large, humanity is apart from God. Uh, you see this in the book of the Judges, for instance. Uh, the people of Israel, even after they've entered into the promised land, uh, when they're not dwelling in relationship with God, what happens? Chaos, brokenness, sin, pain, all of the rest enters into the picture. This is kind of biblical theme of even the covenant people of God either being with him or being apart from him. And to be with God for Israel, you'll remember, means the promised land. It means the blessings of the promises that they have access to. It has all these wonderful entailments. It means a king who will rule over them in favor, and the king will be the one who intercedes between them and God and who rules the people as the uh, righteous ruler on God's behalf. And so there's this fellowship with God theme, which is broken. It's the whole point of the prophets and actually the book of First and Second Kings is you have all these kings and all, all of Israel in the land, but Israel is apostate, broken, in disfellowship with God. They don't want to dwell with God. They want God to be one of the many things that assists them, but they don't really want to live in right relationship with him. And so what does God do? He first sends them prophets to turn them, and ultimately, though, they don't listen to the prophets, so he sends to them the Assyrians to cut them off from the land, later the Babylonians to cut off the southern kingdom from the land, and Israel is exiled from the land, gone far away. And so then the hope is that Israel will be restored, not just to the land, but restored to God. This is the, if you've ever read the, the Minor Prophets, this is how kind of all of them end in those final chapters of them, uh, of, of those books. Uh, Hosea speaks of God uh, longing to reconcile with his people. And so he says, therefore, return, O Israel, from your sins, for I will rescue you. It's actually in Hosea 13 that we get that wonderful quote uh, that shows up in 1 Corinthians 15, where Hosea, uh, God says uh, through the prophet Hosea, uh, I will not abandon my people to death. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? Because it's not that the people are all that wonderful in chapter 13 of Hosea, but it's that God is on a determined mission to be with his people. It's the point of the Gospel of Luke. That John the Baptist comes on the scene and announces that God's freeing of his people and his return to dwell with them is upon the people. That in John the Baptist's life, there will be one who comes and who ushers in this new era of humanity, which is Christ. And he will be the one who reconciles us to God and who is the one who reestablishes that dwelling with God idea. And here Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, says to a guilty of death thief, you will be with me. It's kind of the point, right? This whole thrust of dwelling with God. 
Now, that has all kinds of implications to it. Uh, one of the implications is it, it answers a central question that many of many Christians and probably many of you have struggled with uh, in the past. It's actually a question Paul asks in Romans. If God is going to forgive people of all their sin so that sin has no more power over people, sin, sin holds no more guilt over people, what's to prevent people from going back to their sin? If God will freely forgive, should we then continue to sin because God will continue to forgive? It's a misunderstanding of this whole idea of dwelling with God. Why does God restore us into fellowship with him? So that we could remain in fellowship with him. That's the whole point of God cleaning us up so that we can be restored once again to relationship with him and walk in that place forever with him. That's the whole idea. It, it, it's a little bit like uh, if, you, if you were ever a child uh, and, and you had to go and take a bath because you were, you were dirty, you had to clean yourself off before dinner time. Um, there, there would be no sense in, in being dirty, showering, getting yourself all clean, getting out of the shower, and then going straight back outside and rolling around in the dirt. Uh, it would be like saying, well, I could just go back to the shower and clean myself. Yes, but the whole point of the shower is that you would remain clean. That you would, you've now been clean, and now you should remain in that condition. It's a poor illustration. Because, uh, actually, we, we inevitably get dirty gradually over time, once again. But the idea of us being with God is that this constitutionally changes how we live in the world. He has not just, re, he has not just given us this dose of immunity to sin. He's actually changed the whole orientation of our life to be not apart from him, but with him. Not out of the land, but in the land. And Israel, when they're in the land, has to live in a different way than people who live who are outside of the land. Christians have to live in a different way than non-Christians do. There's, this, there's all kinds of, we would say, entailments or expectations for those who are with God, who walk with him. And this is kind of the point of, of what's happening here in the criminal. He has this hope of being with Jesus. And often we can think to ourselves, and I think wrongly conclude from this text, because he dies shortly thereafter, Really what salvation is, is it's a, a, a saving of people, but it has no relation to how they might live beyond that saving. But that misses the whole point of what one is saved to. When you are saved as a Christian, you are saved out of your sin and into relationship with God. You are saved out of the old man and into being a new creation. And that changes you to live in a different kind of way. So that when Jesus recreates our access to God... Well, that's not so that we can go back to our sin without any guilt anymore. Actually, Christians feel more guilty over sin than non-Christians do. It's the whole point of the Holy Spirit. He, he works in us to convict us over sin and to then bring us to repentance so that we would no longer persist in our sin. So when you are in relationship with God, when Jesus has recreated your access to the Father, Son, and Spirit, to himself, it means that you live differently than before you had access to God. You should live differently. And I want to be clear about this. This is not you need to live differently or else you'll be cut off again. You need to live differently because you are now different, being in relationship with God. Another uh, kind of way to make the same point, if you picture someone who has been uh, addicted to drugs for a number of years, uh, 
when you find them in that condition of slavery to those substances. Sometimes it will be the case that, the, that those people will want to be free of their slavery, but they would express something to the effect of, but I'm really powerless to, or I have no control over the changing of my state. I'd want to be different, but I can't be different. Well, then imagine someone came along and said, actually, I can take away all of your desire for these drugs. I can remove the effects of the withdrawal from you. I can cushion all of that away. I will actually, I will remove all of that from you. And now you're going to have a blank slate. You won't, you won't have the effect of that sin, that drug over you anymore. You won't have any inclination for it anymore. You will be freed from it. Well, what, an, what the appropriate response would be, would be would not be, great, I'm free from the addiction, so I can go right back to the addiction. The appropriate response would be, I am free from the addiction, now let me live in the freedom that has been given to me. This is the point of being saved. We are free from sin and its power over us, the grip that it once held. So why would we return back to those sins? Why would we return back to that condition of slavery? Don't you know that you are no longer slaves to sin, you are slaves to Christ, to the one whom you obey. Therefore, live in slavery to Christ, in slavery to righteousness, as Paul would say. So when Jesus recreates our access to God, he's, he's doing all kinds of things, not just uh, immunizing us to the condition of judgment, he's, he's constitutionally changing our life. But I mentioned this is a two-point text. And that second point is, remember, there are those who are with God, that's their purpose, and there are those who will dwell apart from God, that's their end. And we can capture that, what does that mean, what does that imply, with the use of the term paradise here in verse 43. So when one is saved to be with God and in paradise, well, we could say that, there, well, then there will be those who will be apart from God, not in paradise. So when Jesus says to the, to the, thief, the, the criminal, you'll be with me, and, and where is Jesus? He's going to be in paradise. Well, then there are going to be those who will be apart from God and therefore not in paradise. Now, uh, when I say paradise, I don't want you to think of probably what immediately pops into your mind as a, as a Westerner. Um, kind of some um, a beautiful city, place, utopia. That's not really all it's cut out to be. Basically, every utopian movie, society, uh, you know, the Hunger Games, all these, all these kinds of shows and, and media, what they, what they really say is there's no such thing as utopia and everything that looks like utopia is too good to be true. And often when, when we think of paradise or utopia, we think uh, on, the, on the surface it could be good, but really when you get down to it, it's not, it's not good. What I want you to think of when you think of paradise is an actual place of bliss and, and unity with God. The, the use of the term and uh, this is going to get a little deep, and then we'll, we'll come back out to kind of that same main point. The, the use of the term paradise is actually a borrowed term from, in, in Greek. Uh, it, it's borrowed from the Phoenician language, and it usually refers to something like a garden or a, a place of dwelling, where, something that a king would have access to, a place of rest. Uh, kings had wealth. Kings had power. Kings had, uh, they could buy land and, and, uh, and array that land so that they could rest in a place where they could be unbothered. This would be the place of paradise. It's, um, I think about if you've ever had a beautiful, quiet morning, there's, you hear nature in the background and you can see the sunrise and 
There's nothing disturbing you. There's no anxiousness that you feel. It's, it's a little bit of this picture, a place of paradise, a place of uh, being unbothered and being in rest. Well, the term uh, is then borrowed and is used by the writers of the, of the Septuagint, which are uh, people who translated the Old Testament and translated in, from Hebrew into Greek. Uh, it begins to be associated um, by those rabbis as, as a place where those who are in relationship with God but have died, the paradise is where they go. So in the Old Testament, if you're an astute reader of the text, one of the things you'll notice is everyone, good, bad, and otherwise, goes to death. Everyone dies. That's kind of the whole, uh, the whole reflection and the term that's used often in your English Bibles would be the term Sheol, the place of death. Everyone goes to Sheol. The righteous go to Sheol. The unrighteous go to Sheol. The covenant people go to Sheol. Those who are not in covenant with God, everyone goes to Sheol. But then the question is, well, what is the difference then between a righteous person and an unrighteous person? Well, a righteous person goes to Sheol, but in a different kind of way than, a, than an unrighteous person would go. Actually, you can see this illustrated in Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. Both of them go to death, but the righteous goes to death to be comforted, as, as it's termed there, Abraham's bosom, and the unrighteous goes to be tormented in that same place of death. So here is uh, what we would say maybe Abraham's bosom or paradise, still dead, but being comforted in death, and then a place of death which is more akin to torment. Remember, Jesus has not yet died. He's not yet resurrected. So people cannot dwell with God in heaven right now. That, that is not a possibility for the righteous. They're awaiting their resurrection from Sheol. And so what's Jesus going to do? Well, he's saying to this thief, this criminal, after you die, you will go to the place of the righteous dead. You will go to paradise, to Abraham's bosom. And actually, I'm going there too. But I'm not going to stay there. It's kind of the rest of the point of Luke and, uh, and subsequent New Testament texts would say similar. That Jesus goes to paradise, to the place of the dead, to ransom all the Old Testament saints, all of the righteous, and break them free and bring them to the presence of the Father. That's a constitutional change that happens for those who were Old Testament saints awaiting their resurrection. And they still await their bodily resurrection, but in some ways we have a foretaste of the resurrection in Christ's resurrection. And so all those who are in paradise in the Old Testament were resurrected and now dwell, we would say, in heaven with God. So you, Christian, when you die, are going to go be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But not really to paradise in the same way that this uh, criminal goes to paradise. But actually, you're going straight to heaven because of the work that Jesus that has already been done in the past. Okay, what's the point of me saying all that? Well, you remember, paradise is the place of comfort. And we already have a picture in Luke's gospel of, of the non-paradise place where someone who is in rebellion against God goes. And it is a place of horrible torment. If you want to read about this, uh, I think it's Luke 16 where you can read it at the end of that chapter. The rich man suffers greatly. Jesus is the one who speaks mostly, uh, more than any other New Testament writer, about this place called hell. This place that's not just a place of death, but a place for the unrighteous dead to go, and where they will be forever cut off from God. Now when we say cut off from God, what we do not mean is that God ceases to exist in relation to those people. Being cut off from God means you're cut off from the favor of God. And actually all that resides is God's wrath against sin and, the, and ergo upon sinners 
who embody and celebrate that sin. And, and this is kind of the two conditions. There's the place of paradise and the place of torment. And one of these criminals goes to the place of paradise to be with Jesus. That's the guarantee of Christ. And the other one, the one who has no fear of God, will not go there. It's got all kinds of implications for us today as well. The Christian message is not just a message of hope and restoration and unity with God. It also is a very profound message of judgment that resides upon those who will refuse to turn away from their sin. And it is, and it is no use to uh, the world to cushion that message of judgment away because half of the point of turning away from your sin is so that you do not have the wrath of God abiding upon you. But if you tell people constantly there is no wrath of God against sin, then the question is, well, why should I turn from my sin? It's a place of either neutrality or maybe being a little bit better off. But what is the point of paradise? Well, the point is you escape the judgment which is already upon you as a sinner. And we cannot cushion that message away from people, partially because the Bible never cushioned that message away from people. And then we can ask the question, how does one become aware in order to respond to this truth? And it's in the words of the thief on the cross, who says, it's the fear of God. What's the difference between the first criminal who accuses Jesus and has, he has no fear of God, and the other criminal, the one who responds appropriately, we would say has a right fear of the Lord. Randy Alcorn uh, says it this way. He says, the fear of the Lord does not scare us out of our wits, but it scares us into our senses. So the fear of the Lord does not scare us so that we become senseless. The fear of the Lord scares us to become sensible people so that we respond rightly to sin, rightly to righteousness, rightly to holiness. The fear of the Lord snaps us back into reality. And what the fear of the Lord is in scripture is it's a kind of thing that orients us so we can respond appropriately to God. Those who have no fear of the Lord cannot respond appropriately to the Lord. So as Christians, our, our whole aim in life is to be constantly cultivating in ourselves a sense of the fear of God. Now that does not mean terror of God. In, in some sense, it means uh, awe, wonder, worship, adoration for God. So that we would live our lives in accordance with that. When we, whenever we sin, whenever, if you're a Christian, uh, you will unfortunately still struggle with sin in this life. If you've been a Christian long enough, you did not need me to tell you that. What the fear of the Lord in some sense does is, it, is, a, is a, a kind of thing that moves us towards seeing sin for what it really is. And it's only when we lapse away from fearing the Lord, away from seeing him as awesome and majestic and worthy of worship, only when we move away from a fear of the Lord that we can really engage in sin. Because sin is a rejection of fearing God and it actually says, actually, I don't fear God. I'm actually captivated by this sin. I'm not captivated by God. I don't fear him. I'm captivated by this sin. I, I, I think this is actually more pleasurable than God. It's a lack of fear of the Lord. And so as Christians, our whole ambition in life, why, why, we, why do we sit under the preaching of God's word? Why do we pray? Why do we worship? It is to preach the message to ourselves over and over again that God is worthy of worship. And, and that he is better, far better, than any other option. That he is far better than any other thing in this world that we could set our heart and our affections on. 
He is far better than, any, than anything that sin offers. The whole point of the book of Proverbs, sin offers the same thing, sorry, lady folly, sin, offers the same thing as lady wisdom. They offer the same thing. But lady folly's promises are empty and they lead to death. And lady wisdom's promises lead to life and life everlasting. Sin is going to promise you all of the same things as life in the land with God. It will promise you happiness, joy, completion, satisfaction, and general pleasure with yourself. And actually, the Bible says that sin can promise all of those things, but it offers actually none of them. And actually, only dwelling with God can truly offer and satisfy all of those cravings. How can you feel most complete? Is when you're unified with God who created you to worship him. You can feel complete when you're doing what you were created for. How can you feel joy, even though you feel rather inadequate in in your day-to-day life? Well, you can feel joy because Christ is adequate and God has created you just as he wanted to create you so that you could be saved by Christ into worship so that you could worship God. There, there, is no, there is no sense of inadequacy in the Christian church because we are all baptized into the same spirit. We are all baptized into Christ. We are all unified together as a body and therefore we all have this hope of dwelling with Christ. Therefore, there's no place of division, comparison, anything like that in the Christian church because we all have this same end goal to dwell with God and to worship him. So when when I say the the point of these verses is actually rather simple, that Jesus is the one who recreates our access to God, what he's not doing, or what I shouldn't say what he's not doing, what he's not only doing is opening the door so that we can now go in if we want to. What he is doing is he is moving us constitutionally from a condition of death into a condition of life. He's moving us from slavery into freedom. Or if you like that earlier illustration, he's moving us from addiction to sin into freedom from sin. And, that's, and, and what that means is, how do we live uh, in light of that movement, in light of that uh, re- re-accessing God? Well, we live differently as a result of that, don't we? Because we're not just being saved from the previous guilt of sin. We're being saved actually to something as well, which is life with God. And that does actually change how you would live your life on a day-to-day basis. Reading the word does not become something you do in order to curry favor with God. Reading the word becomes something you do because you love God and you want to hear what he has to say. Prayer is not something you do because... Well, you know that Christians should pray and you feel guilty when you don't pray. It's actually the wrong motivation. You pray because you love communing with your Savior. Why do you go to church? Why do you worship? Well, not because people will ask you, where were you if you don't come to church? Or uh, you'll feel guilty if you don't come to church a certain number of Sundays in in a month or whatever. Why do you go to church and worship God? Well, because worshiping God is where your soul feels most full. It's where you find rest. It's where you find comfort. It's where all of the, the, the worries and the chaos of this world drowns away and your heart is elevated in affection for your king. That's the whole point of walking with God is that we would be a people who actually embody that, that we would walk with our God. And that's the hope of the Old Testament. That's the hope in the New Testament. That is the hope today as well, Christian, that you would walk with your king and with your God. So let's pray in light of that. Lord, you 
have done a wonderful and mighty deed in saving sinners for yourself. Not only have you been pleased to, in the past, deal with the penalty of sin, but Lord, in the present, you apply, by the grace of your Spirit, the power of that salvation to us. Not just once, but new every day as we experience your grace for our sin, your joy over our obedience to you, your love and your affection for us is is not just something that we know intellectually is true, but Lord, is a felt reality in our life. We as your people, we don't just long to be rid of sin, but we long to be filled with you, to be engaged in worship of you, to dwell with you, to walk with you in the cool of the garden, to dwell with you in paradise. We long to be a people who has fellowship with you. And Lord, I pray that that would orient us, not just away from sin, but towards affection for you. Lord, would you orient my heart, not just away from sin, but to have a real love and an affection and adoration for you. Lord, we know there's a difference between fearing sin and fearing you, between simply trying to avoid sin and enjoying fellowship with you. And we pray, Lord, that by the grace of your spirit, by the power of your word, you would orient us towards a relationship with you. Would you not just give us new desires and affections to accomplish this right now, but Lord, would you also give us the abiding grace of your word, your saints, the Holy Spirit, to walk with us as we go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, next week, that this would not be a a, a momentary access and clarity of mind, but it would be an abiding reality that we live in. Lord, we pray this all as Christians in Christ's name. Amen.